Hi, I'm Guy Powell, and welcome to the next episode of The Backstory on the Shroud of Turin. If you haven't already done so, please visit GuyPowell.com and sign up for more episodes. I am the author of the upcoming book, The Only Witness, A History of the Shroud of Turin, a historical fiction tracing a possible history of the Shroud over the last two millennia. Today, we'll be speaking with Bob Siefker. He is one of the preeminent experts on the Shroud. We'll be talking about a handful of topics and look forward to the discussion. But before we get started, I wanted to tell a short story. There's many hints to the Shroud over the history of the Shroud, and uh, there's even a couple that are in the Bible. And in particular, there's one with Paul in Galatians uh, 3.1, where he says, You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly exhibited as crucified. Well, don't know exactly whether that was a reference to the Shroud, but it certainly could have been. Anyway, most evidence uh, of the Shroud comes from Luke, that the women and Peter found the cloth in the tomb, and there are many other evidences that seem to show that there was a special cloth related to Jesus' burial in the tomb. And it is that that we're going to talk about today. That is what all the fuss is about. So with that, let me introduce uh, Bob Siefker. Bob was brought up in California and attended UCLA on a Navy scholarship with a major in engineering. I was an engineer too, and in the meantime, I've now gone over to the dark side of uh, marketing and other things, but I started as an engineer as well. After, my nearly, after his nearly five years of naval service, he worked on the software industry, eventually serving as VP for two different software companies, the second being in Colorado. And it was in Colorado that he became an associate of the Turin Shroud Center, headed by Dr. John Jackson. And he, as you all know, was the leader of the 1978 Shroud of Turin Research Project, also known as STERP. Bob has been co-author and editor of the TSC book on the Shroud entitled The Shroud of Turin, a critical summary of the observations data and hypotheses, and there's some really good stuff on that, and I definitely recommend people to go off and uh, purchase that. And most recently, he has been involved in the research on the so-called miracle of the holy fire, which I find just fascinating. It's a phenomenon that occurs every year at the tomb of Christ in the Holy Sepulcher in Jerusalem on Orthodox Holy Saturday. With that, Bob, thank you for being uh, here, and let's get started. Uh, thanks for the nice introduction. Good, good to be here, Guy. I'm pleased to be here. Yeah, thank you, Bob. Yeah, absolutely. I'm very uh, looking forward to your explanation on, on uh, certainly the shroud uh, and the uh, the miracle of the holy fire, and also some of the other stuff that you've been working on. So, with that, why don't you tell us what your backstory is on uh, how you got involved in the shroud of Turin? Well, uh, it it all comes from uh, my career uh, in the software industry and. and uh, going from California to uh, uh, the Denver area to join a, a software company there. And it was while I was working in, in Denver that I met John Jackson. Uh, I was on the church council of our church and they said, Bob, we'd like you to schedule a, a speaker to come in and talk to us. You know, they did this a couple times a year. And I did some research and I ran across the Shroud of Turin being in Colorado. I hadn't known much about it before. Although I had been introduced to the Shroud. Uh, interestingly, I, I was given some 
images of the shroud by my grandmother when I was a little kid. And so I had some knowledge of it, but I uh, ended up uh, asking John to come talk to the church. And he said, hey, by the way, Bob, if you'd like, we've got room for volunteers. And uh, this was almost at the time that I was set for retiring. I retired early, I was fortunate. Um, after retiring, by the way, from the software industry, I went back to uh, the Graduate School of Theology in Berkeley, California, with my wife and I. Our kids were grown and uh, got a master's in theology there. And uh, it was about that time that I met John Jackson and uh, spent 15 years of hard work working with him and volunteering and helping in any way I, I could. Uh, for the last two years, uh, my focus has been drawn to working with Giulio Fonti on some research on the Holy Fire. Equally, maybe even more stunning stuff to share on that. Uh, but the shroud is an un uh, unbelievable object. Uh, it's, it's got my attention that I, I fully believe. One of the conversations I had with, with Fonti was uh, in the in the critical summary, I'd said it's a rational judgment. After you look at all the, the data on the shroud, it's a supported rational judgment to come to the conclusion that it's the real thing. And Fonte went, that's stupid. He said, I know the shroud is authentic. And uh, I, I have to uh, grapple with that. I think I know it's authentic too. Uh, it, I know it's a supported rational judgment based on the evidence come to that conclusion, but some people don't um, or won't either way. But I think Fonte's closer to my position today that I, I am absolutely convinced the shroud is authentic. And I am absolutely also convinced that the holy fire phenomenon is authentic. And yeah. one of the, we'll, we'll get into the linkage between the two, but one, uh, buttresses the other. Uh, the holy fire, you know, when they found the shroud in, uh, in the tomb, you read from that uh, gospel passage, uh, it was nighttime. You know, the, the women had run uh, to get John and report to John that they'd taken the body. And they came back, it was still dark, and they were able to see in the tomb. And the orthodox position is that's because there was light in the tomb. The tomb was bright with light. You know, there's talk of an angel being there with, with lit up angel, but the tomb uh, supposedly was was dazzling with light when, they, when John showed up and he was able to see into it in the early morning before light, before daybreak, and see the shroud and see the other cross in there. Um, so when you look at it, we've always needed an explanation because when you look for an explanation of the shroud uh, image, you always end up with, it's got to be some, because it's scorched onto the cloth. It's not painted or marked onto the cloth. It's not a body image from sweat or any material other than scorching of the material itself, which is a product of some kind of interaction with radiation or light. So it's been a mystery. Uh, what is the source of that light? And I think we now know it's, it's God. Jesus said, I will give you a sign, the sign of Jonah, three days in the tomb. And like the, uh, like the saying says, there's a connection. 
the light of the holy fire is the source of the shroud's image. And the shroud is a one-time event. Uh, the holy fire is a repeating event, which uh, is very powerful for those who know it. Most people have never heard of it. Yeah, it certainly, it certainly is. And uh, interesting perspective that there was light in the tomb because, uh, you know, it had to come from somewhere. And although, you know, potentially the, uh, you know, you could maybe imagine if they're traveling at night, the, the women, and uh, they go into the tomb, they're probably traveling or walking with a torch of some kind. So maybe that was it. But certainly, you know, there were the two angels uh, that were in there that could have been lighting it up. And certainly it could have also been this concept of the holy fire or something else that uh, that generated all of that radiation that, you know, was still residual or something like that. And um, yeah, very interesting. Um, I was wondering, do you want to start with the, the, the work you're doing with the holy fire first or do you want to do some of the work that you did on the on the critical summary of observations? Uh, what, whichever let's one let's you want start, to... Guy, with the uh, critical summary. Uh, you know, I was yeah. the editor and primary writer on that, although the effort was uh, totally a, a team effort of the whole Tear and Shroud Center staff, John Jackson, uh, others there that work with John, uh, but I was the primary writer for the Critical Summer. And uh, before we get started on that, where, where can you purchase that book? Uh, the best bet is, unfortunately, it's not on Amazon. It's on a small publishing company uh, in the Chicago area. Uh, CMJ Publishing, and they have, they sell books. Uh, the best way is to go to the uh, Turin Shroud Center website, and there's a link to buy the book there. Okay, yeah, pa fantastic. So, and I'll so, try and repeat that a little later. So, shroudofturin.com. Uh, yep, shroudofturin.com, and a great, what a great uh, domain name, certainly. So, uh, <laughs> Uh, uh, perfect uh, place to go, and then also to link over to uh, to purchase that book. So tell us about the book. What's uh, what's uh, what's in the book, and and how is it organized? Because it has a very interesting organization and classification of all of the the different observations concerning the the shroud. Yeah, it's it's basically the the areas of, of research that you can conduct on the shroud: historical research, research, uh, research on the cloth itself. Uh, with or without an image, can you date that cloth back to the, to the uh, first century? So you've got uh, the shroud itself as a cloth. Uh, you've got the image on the shroud. You've got medical forensics. Uh, there's a lot of medical forensics that's displayed on the shroud that you can come to some very uh, pointed conclusions relative to what happened to the image the person associated with the image on the shroud so you've got the cloth itself the image on the cloth uh, the medical forensics which is, can be studied independently because the shroud reveals all kinds of details about the suffering and the uh, effects of execution to do crucifixion so you've got a section on medical then there's a section on the history of the shroud what is the history through the ages can you take that history logically back from what we possess today to a first century origin. So you look at the history. Um, then you look at image formation hypotheses because uh, since we've entered the scientific age, uh, the shroud was revered by the church, but it was, there was no explanation for the scientific research. So 
once scientific research started on the shroud, a number of different image formation hypotheses were proposed. Some were came from a negative point of view. Oh, it was just this or oh, it was just that. So you have to look at all the different uh, image formation uh, hypotheses and rate those. So it was organized along that, that line. Uh, what is the shroud as a cloth? What is the medical forensics about the cloth? Uh, what about the image itself? What about the uh, segregating and putting into different pockets these various image formation hypotheses? And then uh, some conclusions from all. Yeah. Yeah, and I like that. I And I don't know, I guess maybe it's my engineering background or me just looking for the facts. What I really liked about it was that, uh, you know, you have all of these different uh, facts or near facts, I guess you might be able to call them. And then I like the way they were classified. And then, uh, and then the second thing you do, though, is you classify them as well by whether they're firmly supported or generally supported or uh, maybe documented, but kind of disputed. And uh, so how did, you, how did you come up with that classification? Well, there, there are obviously some issues about the shroud that have been brought up through history that just don't make sense. Uh, or they make sense, but you can't support them from a scientific point of view. And really there are very few issues in the book that are classified as doubtful. The Shroud Center of Colorado would say, we, we can't look at that as any positive. It's there, but we can't give it any weight for evident purposes. Uh, there are only a couple. So the, the book itself focuses on those things that are pretty well mm. uh, supported. And uh, class one evidence, which says it's strongly supported, is the primary content of the book. There are a couple out there that are, that are thrown around, one of which is that there are flower image of, of flowers and coins over the eyes and things like that. Those are less uh, provable. Uh, you can see things, but you can't draw uh, positive conclusions. You can, you, it's circumstantial evidence at best. Mm. Yeah, I had trouble with uh, some of that. I mean, certainly the coin over the eye uh, uh kind of makes sense uh maybe maybe not you know it's kind of more it's the coins over the eyes were more of a greek thing as opposed to a a christ or a jewish thing uh but the one that really got me were the flowers and i think then there's some people that think there were some, the nails were next to him and and even maybe the uh the roman um spear that was that was next to him as well and um, and I don't know I I can't I've got a picture of the uh, of the frontal side of the of the shroud the, the full size from Barry Schwartz, and um, and I can't find those flowers or anything like that on there, and my my problem with with the flowers for example is, is that if they're not on the body, and if the image is you know coming out vertically, then uh, okay they might be able to be seen but if they're next to the body. The body is believed to be the thing that generates the radiation. So how do the radiation form images of those flowers or whatever next to the body? And I don't know, maybe I'm going off in the wrong direction, but no, that's kind of what I was thinking. You're, you're raising an issue. We just said there's, you, you can't really establish without many contingent doubts that there are images of flowers to begin with. Uh, same thing with the coins over the eyes. Some people say, I can see it. 
but the average person and the TSC with all of its scientific know-how said, we don't see it. And, but others promote it. So uh, for the most part, the critical summary stays with the uh, evidence that is, that is widely supported and supports itself once pointed out. So, yeah, yeah. And I think that makes a lot of sense. Sorry, go ahead. Yeah, so there are very few items in there that we included uh, that were not strongly supported by uh, empirical evidence and, and stood up to very rigorous uh, examination. So there are a couple out there, and most of them have to do with uh, those third issues like other things other than the body image, coins, mm. flowers, uh, pollen. Uh, the significance of dirt on the, you know, some people like to say, well, the dirt is exactly like only the dirt that you found in, in uh, Jerusalem, you know, Travertine Aragonite. Mm -hmm. uh, well, yeah, there's some indications of that, but it, it's, it's, not, it's not evidence that you can change your life with. Yeah, it's kind of like, uh, you know, in a, in a court case, it's kind of more the, the circumstantial evidence as opposed to the actual, you know, the fact, the hard kind of yeah. kind of evidence and, and whether that, uh, you know, whether then uh, that individually makes sense. But it's certainly, uh, you know, when you add all of those pieces together, you know, those class one, the firmly supported versus the generally supported class two, when you add all of those things together, and I think that was kind of what you were talking about is the rational scientific mind then would say, yes, absolutely. This piece of, this, uh, piece of linen cloth, this shroud is the true uh, you know, burial cloth of Jesus. Yeah. Yeah. And, and we're, we're kind of in a, a situation where we're in a trial. You know, people are looking at this and saying, uh, am, I, am I gonna believe the shroud is authentically the burial cloth of Christ? I may not say that he was divine, because I have that cloth, but is it even possible that we have that cloth in our possession? Well, you don't want to be dealing with a bunch of circumstantial things because that that decision, of judgment, uh, can be a life-saving judgment and a life-changing judgment. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I remember I, I gave a, a talk at a Shroud conference back in 2014 in St. Louis. It was a big conference on the Shroud. I gave a talk on the critical summary. And I basically concluded by saying that we've produced this at, at the Shroud Center of Colorado. We've got all of the pertinent evidence in there. <clears throat> and we, we take the position uh, that the Shroud is authentic at the Shroud Center of Colorado. And this critical summary shows you why we take that. We believe it is a rational, fully supported rational judgment to come to that conclusion. And, uh, and we have come to that conclusion and we're convinced it's a rational decision to come to that conclusion. And I asked the audience, uh, there were a couple hundred people there. And I said, how many people in this group here today have come to what they believe is a rational judgment being very you know, we are not going to examine everybody's method of supporting a rational judgment, but just out of curiosity, how many here think that they've made the rational judgment that the shroud is authentic? And about two thirds of the hands went up. And then I asked the second question. I said, and how many of you 
has that judgment changed your life? And essentially the same hands thrown up. So we don't need we don't need a lot of little fragmentary things. If it's not really overwhelming evidence, leave it out. Mm. Go to the go to the evidence that you can support such a judgment with and leave out all the other things. I mean, skeptics will want to bring up all kinds of little doubts, little things. There's not much. Yeah. But might as well even even if there's a little, like the coins over the eyes. What difference does it make? Right. And right. who cares? And right. you know, well, I see them. Well, most people don't. And most forensic evidence uh, methods of trying to determine that there are coins over the eyes is is not fully conclusive. So we yeah. just we did that that kind of thing and some of the flower stuff and some of the uh, dirt stuff. Uh, leave it as class three evidence. Yeah. And I think, and that's what I liked about uh, the book in terms of uh, being a, a good listing of all of the different uh, pieces of evidence and kind of, you know, it's, it's almost like you're, you, you know, you use the, uh, the court analogy. It's kind of like you're the, uh, I don't know, I guess it's the defense attorney or one of the attorneys and you go, okay, well, here's all this evidence that we could show. You know, here's the stuff that's maybe, you know, maybe not so good, but then look at the overwhelming evidence that says, this is firmly supported by science, and uh, and therefore, when I present to the my the jury, uh, I'm going to just stick with what is uh, you know firmly firmly supported, and and um, you know and leave all of the the stuff that is you know potentially disputed, or whether it's the you know the the uh, the the aragonite on the nose, or whether it's the the flowers or the coins on the eyes, you know those the kinds of things we don't have to bring up when we actually go to trial, so to speak. That was pretty much our, our methodology. Yeah, yeah, and that made a lot of sense. Now, of course, um, unfortunately, uh, you know, we always have to bring up the radiocarbon dating, and uh, boy, did that put a uh, stick in, you know, that was definitely a fly in the ointment. So the radiocarbon dating from uh, 1988, where it said 1260 to 1390, and, um, and, uh, and so did that uh, apply any uh impact on what you did with the book or how did you look at that well we have a whole section on the carbon dating uh, and our our take on that there the the carbon dating was a botched effort on the shroud and it uh you you can't draw any conclusions in fact uh it's been shown that the samples that now have been an analyzed that were part of the carbon dating protocol uh show a different date uh, across tiny samples in millimeters of movement on those claws, you get a different result. Yep. So there's no consistency in the carbon dating. It was a rushed job. It was poorly done. They didn't want to take much of a sample. So they took it out of the most inconspicuous, but dirty and mended section of the shroud on a little corner. Terrible place to take the sample. There was no sample here, sample there, sample here. It was it was a it was a faulty protocol, and uh, it's hard to it's hard to justify how it even happened, but it did. And but recent, you know, they've they've forced the labs that did the uh, just within the last year and a half or so into publicly uh, disclosing all of their data and all of their methods of analysis, and basically the whole thing's falling apart. Yeah. But, 
remember this, we're dealing with something that certain forces in reality are opposed to. So any doubt gets magnified in the press, on the internet, um, and there are forces that want to say the shroud is not, not the burial cloth of Christ. Well, they'll take any, any doubts they can and try to magnify those. But we addressed the carbon dating. It was a botched, you know, one of the, one of the things is even on the same sample as you move from point to point, you get a different time. Yep. Well, if you moved at that same rate to the middle of the shroud where the body is, you would have been at year zero. I mean, it, it, it's, it's crazy. So yep. one of the problems is they did the carbon dating without the, without a pro, proper protocol, uh, biased the data and then didn't allow any other further tests. I understand why they don't allow any further tests because you're going to cut the shroud up into pieces. And uh, so the, the Vatican, who is the owner of the shroud, uh, it's in Turin, Italy, but it's owned by the, by the Pope. He's the, you know, it's, right. it's, it's part of the Holy See's property. Uh, they said no more carbon dating. Well, you can't go back and overturn it. You just have to say, we don't accept that first one. And there are many papers that have been written in the last 18 months that uh, destroy the carbon datings. But you still go to Wikipedia and uh, I know. Yep. they're not, they're not going to go there. Well, I call it the uh, debunking of the debunkers. <laughs> well, that's, that's why you need some uh, uh, straightforward analysis. We think the critical summary will help people uh, uh, get to the true data. But there are other things coming out. Uh, Fonte has a couple of new books on uh, uh, coins, uh, that, not on the shroud, but coins that were minted right. after the shroud was discovered. And you've got a total correlation between the images way right back. They, they blow way past that 1298. Yep. Uh, uh, you've got other evidence on the shroud that blows right past that 1298. Yeah, and absolutely. And the coins, I think the coins is one of the big ones, certainly the, the Pano Crater uh, images that are out there. And then, you know, even then the uh, the Prey manuscript and some of the other things, they're all well before that 12, uh, 1260 date. And um, and it not only from the scientists, the scientific analysis that was done and the statistical analysis that was done or botched or whatever you want to use as a term there, versus then all of the other proof that really shows, hey, here's evidence, you know, from the uh, the 1100s with the Prey manuscript. Here's evidence from the 600s with the uh, the gold Solidus coins, and uh, you know, and then going back further to the 500s with the Panacrater images and some of the other ones. It's it's just uh, it's hard for me to believe that uh, so many people, uh, you know, see this one piece of evidence. And um, and I don't even know if I'd want to use the term evidence for the radiocarbon dating that was done, but one one data, potential data point, and not realize that uh, there are all of these other ones, and that data point has been so debunked uh, now that uh, so it, it's totally gone. And yet now, how do how do we as shroudists, I guess we'll call ourselves. How do we then get the message out that that thing is no longer valid and get the same level of press and exposure that they got, uh, except now on the other side? 
Well, there, there are new publications. Uh, there's a new book out, uh, a new history book out. I could go get the, I, I can't recall the author's name real quick. Let me go, give me 30 seconds. Um, yeah, get it. Let's let's do that afterwards, uh, okay. if you wouldn't mind. But, but there's another. There's a yeah. new history book out on the shroud uh, that is phenomenal, and it it goes way back in time where the correlation with historical events yep. with the shroud was yep. moved, uh, the cloth itself uh, being moved much earlier than any carbon dating would indicate, right back into the first century. Uh, right. It's the Shrouds movement. Uh, well, I, uh, so for me, yeah, for me, what I did is I took the uh, Ian Wilson's uh, The Blood in the Shroud book, and I uh, basically then wrote a fiction. So instead of, you know, just going date by date by date and fact by fact by fact and then, and whatever. So what I tried to do is I took uh, about 10 different uh, vignettes of dates and then wrote a fictional story around that. So you have the shroud in Golgotha and then at the tomb, and then you have the, uh, the shroud potentially with Joseph of Arimathea, and then you have the shroud in Edessa and then in Constantinople, et cetera, et cetera. And, um, and so then that's, that's kind of how, how I got into it. And where I was trying to get to was, uh, and one of the reasons for me to write this book was to kind of, uh, you know, right the wrong, so to speak, and say, you know, here is then a story that people can read as yeah. opposed to just a bunch of facts and historical facts. Here's a story that somebody could read yeah. and kind of get an, an, an idea of actually what, what, and what may have happened then to the Shroud. Yeah, those, that's a good book. Uh, Ian Wilson has done wonderful work, but yeah. he's, he's actually been passed up now, too. Uh, there's the new book that I recall the author's name, Jack Marquardt. Oh yeah, I've got that one as well. Yep, he's the new book that's just got published. Uh, yep, and I'm it's on my reading list, but I've got a ways to go yet. It's uh, uh, but it's definitely there. I'm going to get to it here pretty soon. Uh, it, it's it's a, it's a game changer too. Yep, but it's very technical, and you you can't read it uh, with the attention you need unless you already know quite a bit about the shroud. Yeah, but if you do. Uh, Ian, Ian was right about a lot, but he was also wrong about a lot. Uh, we don't even think the shroud was ever in Odessa. Yeah, it was there I, for a day, but it wasn't. It wasn't there for long, and uh, Marquardt kind of buries the uh, the Odessa thing. So there's some new research on the history that just correlate back right to the right to the tomb. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's got some interesting stuff. Yeah, he's got some interesting stuff about it going to Syria and uh, and then Peter having it. And then, of course, the reference to Paul and in Galatians, potentially that he had it or somebody that was close to Paul had it or showed it. And um, uh, yeah, and and that's, you know, so I've got him. I've got the shroud going to Edessa and being in there with Cap King Apgar. Uh, so, you know, but who knows? Right. Um, and but he's got some very good evidence. No question about it. I really appreciate what he's done. We think, uh, well, I, 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 you know, I can't say we think, but I think that Marquardt has got a superior history line. Yeah. But they're yeah. very, they're, they're very correlated, only disagreeing in certain areas that aren't really relevant to decision. But both of them blow past 
1290 carbon dating. Oh, yeah. Yeah, so absolutely. It's just a fiasco. I wish we could just say, we don't want to talk about carbon dating. It's been debunked. But you have to. I know. You absolutely. Hopefully, you know, I liken it like this, uh, you know, and hopefully the uh, the Pope now or the the Catholic Church will allow uh, another round of testing similar to what was done with STIRP in 1978. And I was, uh, I, I kind of call it like the, the scientists, the, the shroud scientists are spending their 40 years in the desert and that 40 years is now up. And so hopefully now we'll get another chance to, to do some real scientific research on it using the latest methods and all of the all the things that we know so far and all of the things where there's some very interesting questions that could actually be resolved. Yeah. So uh, I, I don't disagree. I'd be very conservative on that though. Uh, I would, you know, we're going to talk about another subject here today too, Guy, and I'd like to uh, bring that in. Yeah, let's do that. Let's move over to the Holy Fire. Uh, okay. Well, help, help direct the conversation and all yeah. this. Absolutely. So, um, uh, and, and uh, what's going on is, uh, and, and, and Bob kind of mentioned it, what was the mechanism that may have actually uh, generated the image that's on the, on the shroud? And, you know, is it, are they scorch marks? They're not paint, they're not pigments, they're not dyes, they're not all of these other things. And uh, so something created that. And, uh, you know, it, it had to have been, or it is most likely to have been a, a radiation event of some kind. Some think it's maybe light. Some think it's maybe, uh, uh, you know, protons and, new, and uh, electrons. And, um, and so then one of the things that's happening is this event of the holy fire, which takes place once a year uh, in the shroud at the, uh, and I'm going to leave it there because I'm going to get the, de the details wrong. So let me hand it over to you and uh, and go from there on in terms of what the holy uh, the holy fire is. Okay, well this is a phenomenon that goes back over seventeen hundred years. Uh, the, the the tomb of Christ uh, was desecrated early in history uh, by the Romans. Uh, Jerusalem was captured by the Romans, and the, the tomb of Christ was filled with dirt, piles of dirt, and a uh, an idol tomb with, or an idol uh, was built over the tomb and it was basically inaccessible for uh, centuries until the time of uh, uh, Constantinople. And, uh, so until, until about the 300s, uh, when Constantine uh, became emperor, the uh, the tomb of Christ was buried under a, uh, a, an idol-based uh, structure of the Romans. And so when it was excavated and rebuilt, uh, uh, this Holy Sepulchre really for the first time, uh, this phenomenon showed up almost at the same instant, even while the uh, construction of the Holy Sepulchre. Once the tomb was uncovered, and it was access. Uh, this phenomenon showed up, and the phenomenon was candles or uh, torches being spontaneously lit. Now, nobody's suggesting that a, a torch or a candle was the form, but it was it was divine light manifesting itself, generally th 
historically through candles being lit up and candles having a, uh, a physical attribute that is inexplicable scientifically uh, at the tomb of Christ. And that's been going on for 1700 years. I had never heard of it until Giulio Fonti, another shroud researcher, uh, asked the question in a paper. And you, you have that paper. I just hold it up. This is, yep. this is available. On, you get it on the internet. The, the question is that he asked is, is the holy fire related to the Turin shroud? That was his question. And I, I got a hold of that paper. And uh, I can't remember who, who, whether Julio emailed me or whatever, but I read that paper. I had never heard of the phenomenon of the Holy Fire. It has existed strictly in the Eastern Orthodox community uh, from day one, essentially. I mean, before the schism there, but it was the Eastern Church, the Church of Jerusalem, that had this phenomenon. It occurred on Easter Eve, <clears throat> excuse me, in one place in the sepulchre of the Holy Holy Sepulchre, Christ's tomb, on the rock on which he was laid. Mm -hmm. uh, there are very few books on the topic, and all of them that are really uh, of any account have come from Eastern Orthodox authors. So they're not the one. Here, this book I'll hold up right now is probably the most uh, exact and interesting book you can read on the phenomenon. It's called uh, it's by Harris Garlacidus, The Miracle of the Holy Light at the Resurrection Tomb of Jesus. And it's been going on for 1700 years since the time of Constantine and the building of the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. And it occurs. Mm. Now, you go, just saying now, you say, well, let me go look that up. That must be on Wikipedia. Well, it is. And it's totally debunked. <laughs> and yet, uh, Bonte went, his paper, he was there. He went and did experimentation. Others have done experimentation. It's a phenomenon that I am convinced occurs every year. You can go on YouTube and watch, watch it. It's very strange. It's very caught up with the uh, uh, his history and uh, culture of the Eastern Orthodox Church, which is very different than the Western Church. You know, there's a mm -hmm. lot of pomp and circumstance. But this phenomenon, I'm convinced, occurs. And if you read Scarlacidus' book, uh, I think you will too. There's another book out there called The Pastel Fire in Jerusalem, written by a, a bishop of the uh, Orthodox Church, who happens to be an American, uh, Bishop Occientos of Fataki, but it's called The Pastel Fire in Jerusalem. Uh, good to read. But yeah. what's going on now is there's more research going on on this phenomenon and the history of the research. <clears throat> but if you back up from now and say, wait a minute, how does that connect to the shroud? Uh, you've got this fire, this spontaneous fire and little lightning flashes, candles that have been extinguished being lit up and people holding there for 20 minutes or so. Uh, once the fire is brought out of the eticule uh, where the tomb is and the rock on which Jesus was buried. The Eastern Orthodox Patriarch of Jerusalem is in there on Holy Saturday Eve by himself, essentially. A couple others are there watching to make sure he doesn't do anything false, supposedly. Uh, 
his candles are, are lit spontaneously. And then he takes it out and passes it to the crowd. And you can look at online and uh, just look at yeah. it on uh, YouTube. Yeah, well, I've definitely uh, uh, put some links on uh, on this post here for that. That it's that's... it's very it's very different and it's unconvincing until you get a hold of that flame, and then do some temperature with it and do some research on the flame. For twenty minutes, it doesn't burn. That's incredible. That is incredible. And then it becomes a normal fire. So you that see, incredible. Monty put it under his beard and held it there. His beard didn't catch on fire, but he had two candles. He had a regular candle and one lit by a, a lighter, one lit by the fire that was passed from the tomb. They had totally different realities to them. One burned, the other didn't. Yeah. After 10 minutes, they were both the same, normal fire. That is incredible. But, but here's the link. We need a source of radiation or light. We're not saying it's candlelight that the candles are some manifestation of holy fire, holy radiation. We need that in the tomb because when the disciples went in and saw the, the shroud there, uh, we got the shroud, but we don't get the image without some form of radiation or light. It's etched onto the cloth. We need light or radiation. Well, the holy fire is a manifestation of light and radiation. But once you're given that quadrant of reality, light and radiation, God can use that however he wants. So yep. uh, was it Jesus's body becoming radiant with light, like at the transfiguration that caused the image on the shroud? Uh, the image of the shroud is not only there, it's three-dimensional. And John Jackson believes it passed through the radiant body of Christ and was etched onto the cloth. But once you have a source of divine light that you say we're dealing with divine light in the tomb of Christ once a year in the eticule of the Holy Sepulcher on the rock where Jesus was laid and it's only there that it occurs yeah you say wait a minute I can make a I can make a hypothesis and that's what Fonte has done here is the holy shroud related to the to the fire uh, Fonte took the, the the candle and singed some uh, linen that he had brought with him when he was in the, he, he was able to get entrance to the, uh, in 2019. Uh, and he, he used a candle, the one that came out of the other and he put cloth under it and uh, remarkable results. Hmm. So gosh, it looks That like is it. fascinating. There's so many questions I'd like to uh, talk to you about it. <laughs> I don't know, we may have to do this in, uh, on another call, but. Well, uh, here, here's my, uh, here's my take on it, Guy. The, the shroud by itself, and I, and I mentioned this to you, I think, in the conversation, the shroud is a complicated reality. It's got all kinds. So you can write a, the book of the, uh, that we wrote uh, for TSC has dozens and dozens of characteristics about the shroud image and its history and its medical forensics and all those forensics we talked about. It's a complex reality by itself to penetrate the human heart and, and mind and say, I'm authentic, is an, is an arduous task. The holy fire is simple. It either is or it isn't. If you look at Wikipedia, they say it isn't, and we're not going to let it be, by the way. <laughs> do everything they can to say, yep. we're not going to go there. Uh, but 
it, it is there. I mean, that the, the, the two books I go read them, go read about the history, the witnesses that have, that have witnessed it, the testimonies that have gone through the last 1700 years. It's incredible. It's been going on exactly in the same way for 1700 years at the tomb of Christ on the eve of Holy Sunday. I'm, uh, it is fascinating and I will definitely uh, look at those books and see if I can uh, uh, read through them. Uh, you know, it's interesting too what you just said about, well, that you also started with is that the tomb was destroyed by the Romans, which makes sense. And then it was buried, and then they put an idol over it, which also makes sense. And then it was, wasn't until Constantine was emperor and the first Christian emperor of the Roman Empire that he then, uh, you know, opened it up. And I guess one of the other things is that if that holy fire is, uh, is authentic, and it sure sounds like it is, then that also means that that spot that has been tradition as being thought of as being the, the, the tomb is absolutely the tomb because that phenomenon doesn't take place anywhere else. It's so therefore, that brings that together as well. Yeah, there, so, there was the old story of the garden tomb and the Golgotha tomb. Uh, Golgotha and the tomb of Christ are right next to each other. Hmm. The, the garden tomb doesn't have much traction anymore. This, this is the yep. tomb, even without yep. the holy fire. Yeah, but, yeah. Uh, uh, yeah. Uh, I, I appreciate it. Um, and unfortunately, I've got to cut us off here. But um, what, what maybe we'll do is maybe in, uh, we'll do another round specifically on the, uh, the Holy Fire and, uh, and really uh, go into detail there. And sorry, we, we ended up doing more on the, on, the, on the critical summary book, which is also fascinating. And I, I really appreciate that. So, uh, but anyway, Bob, thank you uh, so much today. Uh, really been awesome. Really appreciate your time. And, uh, and thank you for participating. And uh, for uh, reference, the website is the shroudofturin.com, shroudofturin.com. And that's then uh, for and maintained then by the Turin, uh, Turin Shroud Research Center. Is that what it is? Uh, Shroud of Turin, Center of Colorado. Center of Colorado. And, uh, and so uh, uh, show shroudofturin.com for more information and definitely a link to that uh, book that was mentioned and, um, and then certainly other stuff. So with that, uh, stay tuned for other videos in this series of the backstory on the Shroud of Turin. And please visit guypowell.com and sign up for more episodes. Thank you very much. Thank you, Guy. Thank you.